Turn to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. We've covered the last three verses said rejoice evermore. And how many of you know you can't be grumbling and rejoicing at the same time? I remember my dad used to say when I was a kid, a kicking mule can't pull and a pulling mule can't kick. So you ought to be pulling and not kicking. Well, you can't rejoice and grumble at the same time. And the Word of God commands us as believers to rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. We talked about that. And last week, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I showed you how, when we have an attitude with our eyes set on eternity and on the and our confidence in the fact that God is in control of everything, we can give thanks in all things. Because God is at work in us to will and to do of His good purpose and favor. If you'll study in the Old Testament concerning the altar of sacrifice, the fire was never to go out on the altar. It was to be perpetually burning. Why? Because there was always to be a sweet savor of uh, an offering going up to, of praise going up to the Lord, a sacrifice for sin going up before the Lord, a praise offerings, thanks offerings going up to the Lord continuously. The fire was never supposed to go out on the altar. And I want to tell you something. When the Holy Spirit comes in, like a, the, our God is a consuming fire, when He comes to live in our hearts, He's supposed to set our hearts on fire and is supposed to be burning day and night, in season, out of season, exhort, rebuke with all long-suffering doctrine. There's no seasons for a Christian. Once he has come and placed the fire of the Holy Spirit within us, John says, I baptize you with water, but he that cometh after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, he's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. We've had a baptism of fire and that fire is not supposed to ever go out. And that means that as Christians, we have to be very, very careful that we don't allow anything into our lives that will chill, that will dampen our zeal for Jesus Christ. I've asked people before, are you as excited about Jesus Christ tonight as you were one week after you were saved? Are you as willing and are you practicing witnessing to others as enthusiastically now as you were then? If not, have you quenched the Spirit? Have you cooled off? Paul, when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, he said, Stir up the gift of God that is within thee, that was given thee by the laying on of hands. He said, Don't let it go out. Kindle it up. Cause it to burn. Blow on it. Stir it up. Get it going. It was a gift that was given to Paul with the laying on of hands. And I want you to know that every one of us have been given the gift of faith. And if we do not stir up our faith, we quench the Spirit. I've said to you before that every one of us has a believer in us, a little mechanism called the believer mechanism. And we choose how that mechanism is going to function. And if it's been given, if faith has been given to us as a gift, is that what the Word of God says? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not of works lest any man should boast. That's a gift that's given, been given to you, and the Scripture says that we're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we're to grow from in faith every day. Now we grow in faith as we exercise our faith, but you and I have a believer mechanism within us. We choose how we're going to use it. We can either believe that things are going to go bad, we can either believe that things are going to become negative, we can either believe we're going to be defeated, or we can believe that God is on the throne, that the steps of righteous men are ordered of the Lord, and if no one else makes it, I will. Because nothing's going to stop me. Now you're using the same mechanism the same trigger, it's called the believer button, but you choose which way you're going to believe it. Someone told me, and of course I don't know because whenever I play golf, I have three strokes. One is a hook and one is a slice and the other one's a miracle if it goes straight. But, but they tell me if I could ever get it down pat, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm putting or chipping or driving or whatever. It's the, the swing is the same. You just have to get that swing down pat. I want to tell you something, once you get that believer functioning properly, it doesn't make any difference whether you believe in God for a pair of shoes or for health or for wisdom or for anything else. The, the mechanism, you just have to learn that swing, and it'll function every time. But when we don't do it, when we begin to do that which is contrary to the Word of God, the Scripture calls that quenching or extinguishing or cooling off or dampening or chilling our zeal for Jesus Christ and quenching the Spirit in our lives. Let me give you some 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 ideas here and see how you think this can be affecting quenching the Spirit. Prayer. Lack of prayer. How is that quenching the Spirit? 
We were just given a command, weren't we, there in, in verse 17? What did he say? Pray without ceasing. How many of you know that if we disobey God's commands, we're quenching the Spirit? If God's Word says, do thus and such, and we don't do it, that's disobedience, and we're quenching the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you have to bring you under bondage where you feel like you have to go around like this just praying all the time. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an attitude of prayer. I find if I'm driving down the road, or if I'm walking around in the yard, or if I'm even doing housework, dishes, or ironing my shirts, or whatever it might be, I, I find myself praying and talking to the Lord just continuously. And somebody says, well, you must be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, that's all right. I'll tell you, I'd rather be that way than be going around every once in a while having a knock on the door and say, Lord, are you still there? But the Scripture says that if we don't pray as we ought to pray, Scripture says men ought always to pray and faint not. And if we don't pray always, we will tend to faint. And if we faint, we're quenching the Spirit because we've been disobedient to the Lord. How about if we don't read the Word of God? Is there some verse that would tell us that we're quenching the Spirit? 2 Timothy 2.15, isn't it? Study to show yourselves approved unto God. Study to show your pastor? No. Study to show the deacons or officers? No. Study to show yourselves approved unto men? No. Approved unto God. In other words, if you and I don't study God's Word, we do not have the approval of God in our lives. If we don't have the approval of God in our lives, how many, know, how many of you know we're quenching the Spirit? Study to show yourselves approved unto God, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now you say, well, I'm not, I haven't been a Christian that long. That's all right, but even little babies learn how to wrap their hands around a bottle and suck on the, on the bottle to get milk. You might hold it for them for a while, and after a while you just let it drop. I can remember when our children were very, very small, and I knew they could hold it, but they'd get lazy and put their hands down. I'd just lay the bottle down on their stomachs once in a while just to see what they'd do. I find they'd get a hold of that thing and they'd put it back up again. Well, before long, you'll not only be doing that, before long you'll be starting to chew the end of that, that nipple off because you won't be able to get enough milk, and then you'll see somebody else. The next thing I gave Jody when she was little, I remember, was a chicken bone. And she'd gnaw and chew on the end of that chicken bone, just drool all down the front of her and everything. It wasn't enough just to have milk. And it wasn't long before we could cut up meat real finely and give that to her and I don't have to feed her anymore. I mean, she knows exactly what to do. But she, I saw a progress. It doesn't make any difference if you've not been a Christian long. Do you see progress in your growth? Now, I want to tell you something. These commandments are not here because God needs them. They're here because you and I need them as a reminder that if we're going to have what Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, we can't have it if we don't do what God says is for our good. Believe me, God's not trying to punish us by telling you to pray without ceasing. He's not, he's not doing this at all. He's not trying to punish us when he says, stir up the gift of God that is within me, or quench not the Spirit. He's saying that those things, if you do those things, or don't do those things that they tell you, if the Word tells you to do it, it's to your own detriment. And when we disobey God's Word in this area, we're quenching the Spirit. How about fellowshipping with God's people? It's amazing to me how many excuses Christians have today. You talk about a sign of the times. You want, you want me to show you one of the greatest signs of the times as far as I'm concerned? That we're in the very last days? The Word of God says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, all the more as you see that day approaching. How many of you know that when I was first a Christian, they had sometimes two and three week revival meetings, sometimes six to ten weeks revival meetings? And they had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And you know, people didn't say, well, should we go this week? I mean, it was automatic. Let's get to church and have fellowship with God's people. And when I went to Minnesota this last time, very, very few churches in the whole Twin Cities even have Sunday night services anymore. Many of them don't even have Wednesday night services anymore. Sunday morning and that's it. And I understand that we're becoming an oddity down here, that there are many churches that are ceasing to have Sunday night services down here. Well, let me ask you something. Should we follow that trend or should we do what the Word of God says even more as you see that day approaching? How many of you know you can't even plan on having a two-week revival meeting anymore, I'm told? If you had an evangelist come in, if we had an evangelist come in for two weeks, they say you won't keep the crowd. They just can't keep coming. They're just We have gotten so taken up and so busy in the world today, people are just totally exhausted and they're running on fumes. And they can't take it anymore. But the Word of God says here that it's very, very essential, even more so as you see this day approaching, 
You need fellowship with God's people. Why? Because you become influenced by the, the things that you communicate with, that you, where you, what you're surrounded with, and before long it's going to make an effect on you. And that's why parents need the communication with other Christians to find out how God's working in their lives. Young people especially need other Christians to encourage them and to know they're not the only ones in the whole world. For these young Christian young people get together. That's why I love to see the young people come to our house for picnics and so forth and play volleyball and mud wrestle and, and go swimming and whatever else because they, they build up some friendships there that will last them the rest of their lives. And I want to encourage you as parents Make it a priority in your life, not just for you. I mean, I never forget, someone said that they had a week of revival meetings and they had three and a half people saved. Someone spoke up and said, oh, three adults and one child? He said, no, three children and one adult. He said, the adults are only going to have about half their life left, but those children have their whole life to serve the Lord yet. And the reason you want to make it a priority in your life, don't ever ask the children, should we go to church Wednesday night? Should we go to church Sunday night? Just recently, a parent asked their child, will you do such and such? And the child said, no. No, it gave them a choice. How many of you give your children a choice to go to school? How many of your kids want to go to school this week? I mean, think about it. I mean, it's not really necessary. No parent ever does that, do you? Oh, I want my kid to have their education. I've written it from my Bible. I'm trying to remember who it was that said it. I think it was Bud Robinson that said, I'd rather have my children learn their ABCs in heaven than know all the languages of hell on earth. If you think school is important for your children, you have no idea in comparison how important it is for your children to hear God's word preached and fellowship with God's people. You're establishing a priority in their life. And let me tell you again, now, if you don't make it a priority in your life, Oh, they'll do just as much as you do as long as you're here. But when they set up their own home, you will find that they'll do to excess what you've done in moderation. And if you think that's going to be a heartache, wait till their children have children and they don't go to church anymore. That's why the scripture says, quench not the spirit. And if the word of God says that we're not to forsake assembling ourselves, in fact, get together more often as you see that day approaching. How many of you really believe the Lord's coming is close? Really believe that he's coming soon? Most everybody believes that. But as you look around, do you think the churches show signs that the Lord's coming soon? Oh, in some ways it does, because they're, they're becoming more like the world. But in other ways, they're not showing that the Lord's coming soon because they're not meeting together more and more like the Word of God says. How about watchfulness? Scripture says we're to watch. Be watchful. For what? Watch for the Lord's coming. Watch for the signs that are, should take place. How many of you know that Israel becoming a nation again? in their own homeland is one of the surest signs that we're in the end time. One of the surest signs. See, I, I still do not believe that, that I'm, I'm Israel, that the church is Israel. I still don't believe that. I do not see it in God's Word. And you wait till the blessings of God come on Israel over there and all of a sudden it's going to become a nation amongst nations. It's going to be one of the strongest economies in the world. And then God's blessing is going to come in the days ahead. When, they see, when, he, when Jesus comes back and they see him whom they've pierced, then we'll know for sure. But that time is coming so close. And the word of God says that we're to watch. Because we know not the day nor the hour when the Lord comes. We'll know the season, but not the day nor the hour. And he says, in an hour that you think not. But he says, watch. Keep your eyes open. Many times I have driven down. In fact, again today, I was driving down 1792. I thought, you know, no, Lord, I could be here another day, another year, another ten years, but have I really accomplished what you'd have me accomplish? Am I really keeping my heart in the place that you'd have me to keep it? Am I doing what you'd have me to do? I know that either the Lord's going to come or I could be called home at any moment. Lord, I want to be ready to come when that time comes. And I thought, how many Christians are that consciously aware of the fact that they could be called home instantly? We don't think about that often enough. How many times we have come to this church and have been, by the grace of God, been able to get back home and come again the next time. We need to be watching every moment. And when we don't watch, we're quenching the Spirit. We quench the Spirit with worldly attitudes. When we allow pride to come into our life, when selfish ambition comes into us to work, this is what I want to do. And Jesus gave the illustration of the rich fool 
who said, what am I going to do? Look, my barns are filled. What shall I do? I know what I will do. I will tear down these barns and I will build bigger barns. And then when they're all filled up, I will say, soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool. This very night your soul's going to be required of thee. Then whose shall all these things be? And I keep thinking of that over and over again. Lord, everything that you put in my hands, I've got to keep my hands open because it's not mine, it's yours. How can I use it to glorify you? Where are my ambitions right now? Oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to get, well, when I, I'm, I'm really working hard for this. Paul says, I glory in one thing. What's that? The cross of Christ. By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. If we're walking where the Lord wants, to, wants us to and not quenching the Spirit, we are crucified to this world. We don't fall in love with this world or the things of this world. We're crucified to it, and it is crucified to us. It has nothing to offer us. And when it does offer, it, offer something to us, and we get excited about it, the Scripture says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's talking about the world system now. He's not saying hate people out there. He's talking about the world system, the, sin, the, the wretched system that's out there. Don't get involved in that. Don't get caught up in that. Rather, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You and I will become, whatever we, become like whatever we look at. Remember Bill Gothard's teaching on that? You say, I'm never going to be like my dad, or I'm never going to be like my mother. I refuse to be like my mother. Oh, I can still see my mother. I still remember. You're going to be just like her. Because whatever you look at, that's what you become. That's why the Word of God says, looking unto Jesus. And when we don't look unto Jesus, we're quenching the Spirit. And then I want to tell you, we quench the Spirit by our thought life. We can quench the Spirit. How can we do that? Very good. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, pulling down the strongholds. Whatsoever things are honest, true, just, pure, lovely, good report with virtue and praise, think on these things. How many of you know thinking outside of that parameter is quenching the Spirit? I want to tell you something. Down through the years of my ministry, I have had some vigorous deliverance for myself. When I would be driving along and find a, a certain impure thought would come into my mind, and all of a sudden I'd be just sitting there kind of in a daze, and all of a sudden I'd find my mind thinking on that thing. I'd think, where did that rotten thing come from? What's the root of that? And I'd begin to ask the Spirit of God to take me back. Lord, when was it? In my childhood or sometime when I was a, a young person? Did I open myself up? If I did, show me right now, Holy Spirit. Wherever it is, right now, I renounce that in the name of Jesus. I come against that with the blood of Jesus. I take authority over the strong man and bind him and every principality and power, every root of the darkness, every wicked spirit in my life. I rebuke that. I acknowledge it as sin. I separate myself from it by an act of my will. I plead the blood of Christ over it. Lord, I ask you now to deliver me in Jesus' name. But let me tell you something. Don't do that while you're driving. I've almost gone off the road many times, several times. Because I begin to cough and gag and my eyes water up and everything else. I realize that I'm quenching the spirit when I'd allow those things to be in my life. Many of them were rooted in through inheritance. Wrong thoughts. Wrong fantasizings. I want to tell you something. You quench the spirit when you operate in fantasy. Unreality. You're quenching the spirit. God does not operate in unreality and fantasy. He operates in the reality of Jesus Christ and his relationship to you and me. In the reality of the Holy Spirit witnessing to you, convincing you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And you and I have to say, Lord, I'm going to, by the grace of God, make those defense, the parameters of my thought life, just those things that are honest, true, just, pure, lovely, of good report with virtue and praise. I get a Sunday paper and almost have to run through it so I can stay keep my mind thinking on the right things anymore. Because you can hardly find uplifting, encouraging things in any of it. And that's why we have to saturate ourselves with the Word of God. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And whatever your heart is full of, that's what you'll think about. And that's why the Lord says that we're to meditate on the Word of God. If you meditate and meditate, sometimes I encourage you again to take a little three by five card and write a verse on it and take it to work with you and pull it out every once in a while if you're working with your hands. And just meditate on each word. Why, why did you say it that way, Lord? And all of a sudden you'll find another verse popping into your head, another verse, and you'll get yourself into a whole Bible study just thinking on these things. What are you doing? You're stirring up.
the things of the Spirit inside your life, not quenching the Spirit, but allowing the Spirit of God to, to work in your heart. Now, when we don't do these things, let me say it again, we're quenching the Spirit. And the Word of God says, quench not the Spirit. Keep that fire burning continuously in your heart. You'd stop and think about it. There's other areas where you and I quench the Spirit of God. We allow unforgiveness or resentment or bitterness or heart hurt feelings. If we're gossiping, we're quenching the Spirit. If we know truth and we don't live up to it, we're quenching the Spirit. When the Spirit of God shows you something, the Scripture says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? How many of you know that when we sin, we quench the Spirit? Another synonymous verse is, grieve not the Spirit. When you hear these terms and these phrases, you realize that we're not talking about an entity out there. I mean, just a mass or an influence out there. We're talking about a personality, the Holy Spirit. Some people talk about the Holy Spirit of God. And that's a, that's a wrong phrase. It's God, the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit of God. It's God, the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God constantly tells us that this is a person. Not just a power, not just a presence. It's a person. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. It's a person we deal with. He comes to teach us, lead us, to guide us. And He's come to make Jesus Christ a reality to you and to conform you and me into the image of Jesus Christ. So we'll be the gospel of Jesus Christ according to someone. And that's why the enemy knows that he can put our fire out. Then he can win the victory in our lives and defeat us from being able to win others for Jesus Christ. The Lord says, that's why I've got you here to be a witness for me. Quench not the Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of God, Christ, he is none of his. So every one of you who profess to be Christians tonight, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. God the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart. He's come to seal you as the property of Jesus Christ. And he's come to teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever Jesus said to you. So as you read the Word of God, the Spirit of God will just feed new information to you all the time. Scripture says, don't quench him. He's come that you might have life and have it more abundantly in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. If I'm going to be a Christian, I don't want to live a miserable existence. I want to live a, a joyful existence. If Jesus said I can have life abundant, why should I go around with it like a BB rattling around in a barrel? Why shouldn't I be splashing? The only way you and I will splash with joy unspeakable and full of glory is not quench the Spirit. Because then it's the joy of the Lord that you strength. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, we said rejoice evermore. Verse 16, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Talk about quench not the spirit. And tonight I want to talk to you about despising not prophecy. Despise not prophesying. That in the Greek is what they call durative present imperative. Durative present imperative. It means never let it occur. Don't ever allow yourself to despise prophesying. First of all, we have to ask ourselves, what is prophesying? There's three aspects of prophesying. First of all, look at Second Peter, the first chapter to find out what prophesying is. Verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the first aspect of prophecy is the Scriptures themselves. Don't despise the Word of God. The Living Bible says no prophecy recorded in Scripture was ever thought up by the prophet himself. I had someone tell me one time when I was teaching concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and they said, well, that's your private interpretation. The Bible says there can be no private interpretation of the Scripture. And I said, you're distorting that verse completely. That isn't what it means at all. It's saying that whatever God's Word says, it wasn't thought up by the man. God said it to them, and the man said it. And that's why it is prophecy. This is God declaring truth. 
It is the truth of God being declared. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3.16, that all prophecy is given by inspiration of God, and in the Greek it actually says all, all Scripture, I mean, is God-breathed. God said it. All right? 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also, Paul is speaking, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul said you had enough wisdom, the church of Thessalonia, you had enough wisdom that when I spoke the word of God, you received it for what it was. It wasn't somebody just talking to you. You received it as the word of God. And this is why if God calls a man into an office and he declares the word of God, it becomes sin on our part if we despise prophecy. I was speaking to a gentleman this week who was living in total disobedience to what the Word of God said, and I said, now I'm going to tell you what the Word says because that's what you're going to be judged by. The Word of God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I read an article this past week where a little child was quoting the Ten Commandments when got doing a beautiful job until she got down to the Seventh Commandment when she said, thou shalt not admit adultery. And that's the trouble with a lot of people today. They're not admitting it when they're doing it. But this person spoke up and said, I don't care what anyone says, I'm going to do what I want to do. I said, that, sir, is rebellion. That, sir, will send you to hell if you don't repent. If this is truth, and they want to state another thing, I want to make it clear to them that what you have stated is contrary to the Word of God, and you're going to be judged by the Word of God, and if you won't obey the Word of God, that's rebellion, and rebellion is like witchcraft, and that's an abomination in the sight of God. And if you die in that condition, you'll go to hell. I made it very clear to him that it wasn't too many years ago that I had a man doing, going through the same experience, having left his wife running around with someone else. And I went to his office and talked to him and told him, this is what the Word of God says, and this is what it means to commit yourself to Christ. And he said, I'm not willing to make that kind of a commitment yet. Sin is fun. I said, well, you don't have any time to say whether you will or won't. Your life is in God's time. You need to repent. If you don't, you will never see heaven. And he said, well, I can't make that commitment right now. And it wasn't but about two or three weeks later when his former wife, or his wife, actually called me and said, I just want you to know that he was with another woman in bed last night, and in the midst of their frolicking, he sat straight up in bed, rolled off on the floor, and he was dead by the time he hit the floor. And I said, I want you to know that God knows when your time is coming, and you don't have time to say, I will or won't do what God says. They despise the Word of God. And God's Word says don't ever let it occur in your life that you despise God's Word. So the first aspect of prophesying and despising it is the Scripture itself. Secondly, it has to do with preaching. 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 3. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. The Greek actually says desire spirituals, but rather that ye may what? That ye may, it doesn't mean that ye may scripture, it means that ye may preach or declare, prophesy. And uh, for he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So prophesying again is speaking to other people. And it can be used in the aspect of preaching or the exposition of the word. Now, by the way, it's not talking about despise not preachers. There's some preachers that do things that you despise the things that they're doing. It's not talking about, he's talking about the preaching of the word. I want to tell you something. I have seen God take the word, even though it's come out of the mouth of very unclean, unqualified people. And he's used the word to glorify his name just the same. And I can understand that in the Old Testament he used a jackass to say what he wanted to say. And he blessed what the jackass said. And so whenever, whenever I start getting proud, I just have to remember that if God didn't, if I didn't want to do what God told me to do, he could use a jackass and he could take my place. 
And I'll tell you, that doesn't make you feel like you're in, you can't be replaced very easily. If you can be replaced, I mean, I used to worry about a computer replacing me, but now just a diode can do it, I'm told. God's Word says very clearly that we're not necessarily the prophet, the preacher. You see, again, the Word of God gives us qualifications and requirements that we should watch for when we talk about submitting ourselves to a pastor. While I was in North Carolina, I had more opportunities to talk to people who are in leadership concerning why I have difficulty with what I see happening in the denominations today and why people are in confusion because they're following after denominations. I saw an ordination paper in the practice room I was working in and in that ordination paper, uh, the person that was being ordained had to promise that they would commit themselves, dedicate themselves completely to that particular denomination and its doctrinal position, and they would support and encourage and upbuild and, and all these things of the denomination. And I, and I thought, I wonder where that's found in the Scripture. But if we're going to ordain you, then you've got to commit yourself to our special little niche here. But the Scripture gives the requirements for those that would be preachers. And there are some preachers that you have to look at and say, you know, I don't have respect for that preacher, but always, always have respect for the Word of God. And when the Word of God is being spoken, you know, I appreciate there, there are some pastors in the past that would never allow Scripture to be read, even during his message, what the people should stand. He said, I never want you to have a lack of respect for the Word of God. If Jesus were to walk in here, you'd either fall flat on your face or you'd stand to your feet suddenly. And he says, this is God speaking to us. It's God breathed. And so we, we dare not despise the Word of God. Look at, at Luke, the 10th chapter. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. So he says, when I send you forth, and he was just getting ready to send, the, he had just sent the 70 forth in, in pairs. He said, when I send you forth, if they did turn, you, turn away from you and don't listen to you, don't worry about it. They're not turning away from you, they're turning away from me. And in as much as they're rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And when they reject me, they reject God himself. First Samuel, the second chapter, speaking of Eli, verse 30. Let's go back to verse 29. Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifices? In other words, why are you so greedy for my sacrifices and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the cheapest of all the offerings of Israel, my people? He said, you put your children above me. And you know, I could preach for about three hours on that. Parents... If God's Word tells you what you're to do as far as rearing your children are concerned, if you're afraid, more afraid of your children than you are God, you're in deep trouble in the days ahead. He put his children, Eli, the high priest, put his children before the Lord. He would not speak to them. He was afraid that he might offend them if he spoke to them for their sins. And they were doing all kinds of rotten things in the, uh, in the tabernacle. Look at verse 30. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now, the Lord saith, be it far from me. In other words, it's ridiculous to think that this can go on. If you think I'm going to stick with what I said, I had said that with the understanding that you were going to do what I told you to do. For them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God says if they don't have any respect for me, I'm not going to have any respect for them. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have the respect of God than just about anything on earth. And people that take it very lightly when they think, well, you know, I'm not going to obey that over there. God says, don't take it lightly. Don't despise my word. Don't despise what prophecies I bring to you. If you do, I'll treat you lightly also. I'll despise you. Proverbs 1 gives us the result of despising God's word. Beginning with verse 24 through 33. Because I have called, and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, and I what? will not answer. 
in counseling a man this week, I said to him, you're talking about your children not obeying you because they're full of rebellion. Now you're full of rebellion because you won't obey God. And I said, years ago, I warned you if you didn't put God first and put your fam get your family under the hearing of God's Word and submit your family before the Lord, that your family would be destroyed and taken from you and you would be living a desperate life in the days ahead. I said, now everything that I said has come to pass and it's because rebellion on your part. And you're so concerned that your children are in rebellion to you. But I said, you're, you and likewise are in rebellion to God. And until you turn from that, and he spoke up and said, I, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I said, then have it your way. But the end of it is right here. Then shall they call upon me, but I'll not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Do you see that? I have people come and say, well, how can you, why, why, why can't we go and help that situation? I said, we're doing good to help that situation. They have knowingly, willfully, rebelliously lived what they want to do. They have rejected God's truth. And they have come to the place now that the fruit, the, the crop is coming in. I keep telling people, don't sow wild oats and expect to pray for a crop failure. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. God says, when you come to the place that you turn away from my knowledge and my truth, you won't yield to what I say, then you will eat of the fruit of your own way and be filled with your own devices. You're getting your crop coming in now. And everything that you threw out is now coming back at you. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. You see that? And then the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. There are a lot of people that say, I haven't got time for God. I've got to get out and make my living. I've got to get on my feet. I want to succeed financially. God says it's going to destroy you. And I want to tell you, I can tell you a family that's very close to me. When they were down and out and hard, they were constantly asking for prayer, constantly asking for God to, for us to just ask God to meet their need and help them make it through. And finally, when they got out of their school and got on their feet, got into their own professional practice, money started rolling in like you would not believe, and they started going here and there and the other here and this place and that place. And all of a sudden, because they were in that crowd of influence and professionalism, they didn't want to be different, so they began to drink a little bit, and then they began to smoke. And all of a sudden, their family started falling apart, and the husband ran off and started messing around with other women because when the professionals went to their conventions, they didn't go by themselves or with their wives. They would take their girlfriends with them, and he got caught up in this thing, and now the family is disintegrated. The, the children are in, the child, one child may even be thinking of suicide. You say, well, we've got to go help them. The prosperity of the fool shall destroy them if they won't listen. God said, if you don't listen to what I say, it, you're going to pay for it. And then people want to go home and say, well, that preacher is my least bit interested. I'm more than interested. I'll tell them every time exactly what the Word of God says, but if they don't do it, I want to tell you something. I take my hands off. Now, I want you to know, Joe Webb did not write verse 32 there. The Spirit of God said that. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. And then the third aspect of it is forth-telling. Telling ahead of time the reception of immediate revelation. Now there be those who are genuine prophets. Called of God in the office of a prophet. Yes, I believe there are still some today. I believe there's a whole bucket load of them out there that are not true. As I said, there's always been false prophets. Acts 2, verses 17 and 18, is the promise that was given in the Old Testament, first of all, reiterated here by Peter on his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he said, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Now again, note the word, underscore the word upon. He's not talking about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, as some people would call the baptism. Every time it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming up on. In other times, it talks about being filled with the Spirit, and when they were filled with the Spirit, they speak the word with boldness. 
That's one of the signs of being filled with the Spirit, but being baptized with the Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall what? Prophesy in that last days. And we are in the last days. The Lord did that. The last step before, I mean the last dispensation, if I may call that, started with the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and that was promised to them. Ephesians 4 tells how it, is, it started in the church and was spread throughout the church. Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect man, under the measure and of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now on that day of Pentecost, God allowed the Holy Spirit to be poured upon the apostles, and they went out and laid hands on others, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they laid hands on others, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the gifts of the Spirit began to function and flow in the body of Christ. It was prophesied it was going to happen, and it did happen. Now, there weren't a lot of other books that talked about it, but the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, speaks of it very clearly. Some people say, well, that's the only place it talks about it. Well, how many times does God have to talk about it? We see it manifested in the book of Acts. We see it happening to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then the book of Acts, the early church, and every writer of the New Testament spoke in tongues. Every book of the New Testament was written by someone who spoke in tongues and had the gifts of the Spirit operating in their lives. Okay, in, in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, verse 1 through 6, Follow after charity and desire spirituals, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that prophesieth in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spoke with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with the tongues, except he interpret, that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I speak to you either by revelation, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine? And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall they know what is piped or harp? Well, he's going on to say that the times I edify the bodies when I speak clearly to them, um, unless I speak in tongues and then there's an interpretation. And one of those aspects there is the prophesying. He said, I come to you and I prophesy. Now in verse 39 of the same chapter, it says, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues, let all things be done decently and in order. The scriptures are very clear that prophecy is for today. Back in verse chapter 12 and verse 10, the very thing that we started off with here in the other series, Knowing the Truth, it says, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy. And again, that's preaching or foretelling. It's a scriptural thing. You look back in 14 again for just a moment. And in verses 32 and 39, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's saying that if a man is a prophet, he's in charge of that gift. When people jump up and say, I just can't stop, I just got to do this, then you can know that that's not of the Spirit of God. Every time the Spirit of God does something, it's decent and in order. I've been in services before I ever spoke with tongues and knew what it was all about. I've been in services and I've heard people speak out in tongues and something inside of me, something, I don't know what, something inside of me said that's not of me. I had that discernment even before I ever spoke. That, that, that just, no. And then other times I've been in services and right in harmony it just flowed as soon as someone got through praying or singing or preaching or something. Somebody began to speak in tongues and I just felt, yeah, amen, amen. I could just feel it in here that this, this was right. And they'd no more than get done and maybe clear across the church. Somebody else, in fact, one time I'll never forget in this church, somebody across the church had been speaking in tongues and a person stood right up in front of me and began to weep and, and interpret. 
And I just, I just knew that I knew that I knew that what they were saying, that God was in that. That was Him. But you see, when somebody does it, it must always be in decently and in order, and, and you'll know it in your heart. If you just feel like you're just forced to say something, be careful. I've heard people say that they just feel a, a quickening of their heart, and they feel like they can hardly breathe. Sometimes they get so much so excited about it, but if they didn't want to, they wouldn't have to. And I've known of cases where people have been given a word to declare in prophecy in the service, and they just sit there and say, I can't, Lord, I just can't do it. And in one case, a person right in front of them went ahead and fulfilled it, stood up and spoke the very words that that person knew that they were supposed to say. And when they got done, the person turned around to them and said, the Lord said, the next time he wants you to be obedient. Now that, that's, <laughs> that's heavy, <laughs> I tell you. When the Lord just says, turn around and tell the person behind you that the next time you be obedient. What would you do if that happened to you sometime? But you see, that person not only did it because the Lord said so, but they did it in an orderly fashion, and then God showed that person you were disobedient there. Now, examples of foretelling in the Scripture. So you see that it was in the New Testament church. It has not quit. It's going to continue on. Look back in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1. Verse 18, this charge I commit unto thee, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Paul said, I'm committing this charge to you, Timothy. You were prophesied over. And you respond to that prophecy that was made over you. Look in chapter 4, and verse 14. 4.14, neglect not or keep attending constantly to, and care for the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy and the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So Paul said, Timothy, you've been prophesied over that you're going to be used in the ministry in thus and such a way. Meditate upon that. Think upon that. Keep your heart open to that at all times. And it'll keep you doctrinally straight. There are those many times that I've been prophesied over. And God's spoken and said, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And many times I stop and say, now Lord, I remember you said this. I don't know how you want to do it, but I'm waiting on you and I'm not going to despise that prophecy. If it's of you, it will come to pass, and you'll show me exactly how it's supposed to come to pass. If it's not of you, I'm not afraid of it then. But this is what was said, and if this was of you, then I believe you're going to work it out. Look in Acts, the 19th chapter with me, verses 1 through 6. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Uh, another translation says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, look at Acts, go back to Acts, the 11th chapter, verses 27 through 30. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. Not one, but prophets, plural. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now he foretold that there was a famine coming. And they knew that the saints in that area, in that region, were going to be suffering. And so every man, as the Lord prospered them, and according to their ability, desired to and gave to that, that situation. Now, see, how many of you know God knows the end from the beginning? He knows exactly what you're going to be doing 10 years from now. I'm glad I don't know what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now. 
but he knows what, what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now. And if I knew, I'd probably be a basket case. If somebody had told me when I came here to this church that today I would be single and not have my sweetheart, and if somebody had told me 10 years ago that my son was not going to grow up and help me in the ministry, I would have been a basket case. I would not have been prepared for that. But I knew that God called me, and so day by day you just walk it out. That's why the Lord is merciful and gracious not to tell us everything. But He always lets us know that He's not left us, He's not forsaken us, He's going to continue to guide and direct us. And it's a real encouragement. There's been times when, when God has had somebody come and say, the Lord just told me to tell you this, and it's been a real uplift, been a, a real edification for me. And I thank God for those times. Acts 21, verses 8 through 11. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the ship of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. The same had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now again, here's Agabus. He's mentioned several times. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, or his belt, and bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And the Scripture goes on to say that everybody tried to tell Paul, Don't go, don't go, don't go. And uh, there are some that say that he was disobedient and went on, and others say his commitment was so complete, he says, That's fine. If I'm, he said, it, just if I'm going to be bound, I'm ready to die for Jesus. doesn't make any difference. I'm going to go anyway. Uh, some say that he was... He was in disobedience. Others say, no, his commitment was so complete he couldn't care less if he walked into a whole den of lions if, and if he was warned ahead of time, he was still doing it. See, the difference between, they said, a true, brave person is who knows the cost and goes ahead and does it. That's a real hero. Some people will do something quickly and not even think of the cost and afterwards they say, boy, I don't know how I did that, you know, but uh, a real hero is somebody who knows what it could cost them and goes ahead and does it anyway. And, that, and that's what they're saying concerning Paul here. But Agabus again prophesied, and exactly what he prophesied did happen to Paul. And the Word of God said, don't despise, prophesize. 